the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Thursday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. Today, of course, is the National Day of Prayer. We'll spend some time focusing on that later in today's program. Today, we're going to talk with Justin Boggy. He's a senior research analyst in fiscal affairs at the Heritage Foundation. We're going to talk about how the massive spending bill fails to meet conservative priorities. We're also going to talk with Robert O'Neill. He's the author of The Operator, Firing the Shot That Killed Bin Laden and My Years as a Seam Team as a SEAL team warrior. And we'll talk with Matt Staver from the Liberty Council on the President's Religious Liberty Executive Order. For now, we're going to focus on the fact that House Republicans narrowly approved their sweeping health care bill. It's aimed at fulfilling a campaign promise to upend Obamacare. This is after resuscitating legislation that had flatlined on the floor not six weeks earlier. Uh, the revised American Health Care Act passed 217-213. President Trump vowed premiums and deductibles are going to be uh, coming down and the Affordable Care Act is essentially dead. Well, is that an apt description of what happened in the House today and what's going to happen when it makes its way to the Senate. Well, here to talk with us about all of that is Ed Heiselmeyer. He's a senior research fellow in health policy studies at the Institute for Family, Community, and Opportunity, and an expert in health care at the Heritage Foundation. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me back. Well, let me ask you uh, about the president's comments. He vowed yeah. that the premiums and deductibles are going to be coming down. First of all, is that a true statement? Well, it could be, but we're not there yet. So, I mean, this is the president who, as you may have noticed, has a tendency to get a little ahead of the curve here. But, yeah, uh, that is certainly the objective. The objective here, uh, and that's why the legislation didn't go anywhere initially and had to be reworked, is it wasn't addressing, initially at least, the key issue, which Mm -hmm. is that there are a lot of people out there who saw their costs of coverage go up, people who already had coverage and were now finding the coverage they already had to become increased unaffordable. And so it's it's try to address relief for that. And that was what was being reworked in this bill. So is it possible? Yes. Is it intended? Yes. Is it there yet? No, because it has to go to the Senate and we'll have to see what happens. There. Yeah. And who knows what will emerge from the Senate? My guess yeah, is though it... <laughs> it may actually get better there. I mean, so yes. there, you know, it's, yeah. it, 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 it's actually, believe it or not, has happened before. Yeah. So <laughs> we're kind of like we, we just brought down the curtain on Act One now. There you go. <laughs> uh, and now we are going to move on to Act Two. Well, the other statement the president made was that the Affordable Care Act is essentially dead. Is it dead on life support? How, how should we view uh, the Affordable it, Care it, Act? It, it, it is, yeah, it, it is dying. It, no, what's happened is the really sort of two different things with the Affordable Care Act. One is you've got a group of people who are getting subsidized coverage, and as long as the government keeps subsidizing it, they'll stay there, and as long as you're paying money, you can probably find somebody that'll cover them if you pay them enough money. Uh, It may not work the way that the ACA is. So in other words, we've gotten to five states already where there's only one insurer on the exchange. The bigger problem uh, that I see, or the more difficult problem to solve, and the one that this legislation is trying to solve, 
involved is what's happening outside the exchange to people who don't get subsidies and are seeing costs go up and and choices go down and that is the you know 25 million people in the individual and small employer market who aren't getting subsidies so for example as i mentioned and as the speaker ryan mentioned we just had in des moines iowa the newspaper reporting that a third insurer may mm-hmm. leave iowa and, and in a lot of iowa there may be no insurance so what happens when you're a self-employed middle-income person but you can't even buy the policy because nobody will sell it because they can't make any money doing it under this set of rules that's what this legislation is trying to hold off and prevent happening well let's uh, and in fact Aetna also said they're going to exit the Obamacare markets in Virginia uh, next year as well. well. Let's talk about what's in the bill in its current form. And you're absolutely right. It's likely to emerge uh, slightly different in the Senate, maybe dramatically different. But what's in it now? There are a number of provisions in there. They rework the Obamacare subsidy system into a broader tax credit system. So more people uh, think of it this way. More people would be eligible for these uh, tax credits, but the amount wouldn't be as big for a number of people. Um, So they're spreading it further. So that's one thing. The other thing, and this is the crucial thing that's been sticking point, is they create a mechanism where states can apply to get a waiver. A state like Iowa, for example, could say, hey, we need to get relief from these regs that are driving up the cost and causing insurers to exit our market. So we want a waiver uh, from some of these regulations, and they could get that. That's, that was the key element that made the decision here that was negotiated out. Uh, then there's a reworking of uh, how Medicaid is paid for by the federal mm-hmm. government and the state. Uh, so all three of those things are, are main elements in there. But it was the, it was the regulatory aspect that was the hang-up initially that got resolved that now is making is in a position where it could you know, get a vote in the House and move to the Senate. I know one element that was in the original Affordable Care Act uh, would impose tax penalties. Is that still in place, or are they ended under oh, the Oh, no, the in- individual mandate and tax penalties. No, that's that's also part of this. And But that's not talked about, though. Though uh, There are a lot of provisions that are in there, but they're not being talked about because everybody agrees on them, which is getting rid of the uh, uh, t- the taxes and the, and the uh, penalties, yes. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I'm afraid I'm going to have to jump off to another radio interview in a minute here. Well, I appreciate your joining us to give us some clarity on what has happened, what's likely to happen next uh, as it makes its way to the Senate. And uh, appreciate your joining us. Well, thanks for having me. Again, Ed Heiselmeyer is a senior research fellow in health policy studies at the Institute for Family, Community and Operative. The Anti-Affordable Care Act bill passed in the House earlier today blocks federal payments to Planned Parenthood. Don't get too excited for one year. Now, I don't understand the one year uh, limitation. Um, I'm sure there's a story behind that, but it does address this notion of defunding Planned Parenthood, at least temporarily. It also retains the required higher earnings people in a range of industry groups, including insurers, drug makers, uh, medical device manufacturers. You might recall early on that was a major issue in the Affordable Care Act. And as was mentioned, it cuts the Medicaid program for low-income people and lets states impose work requirements on Medicaid requirements uh, recipients, rather, which was not in place before. There's really uh, much more to it. But as was mentioned, it now makes its way to the Senate, where you have a very different body 
uh, that is not likely to accept the bill as is and pass it, even though there's a Republican majority and the vice president has the capacity to break any tie that might occur there. So this is the first round of what is likely to be a very long and arduous battle. And we'll uh, continue to follow uh, that battle as it uh, as it continues. Now, up next, we're going to talk with Jeff Fails to Meet Conservative Anticipated. Now, many are arguing they're postponing the major battle that is yet to come in the next months from now. One would hope they deal. That remains to be seen. Again, up next, Justin uh, Bogey. We're going to talk about the my show. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Well, good afternoon and welcome back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. Well, as you probably know, the House of Representatives, with 103 Republicans voting no, passed the $1.1 trillion spending package on Wednesday to keep the government running through September. Well, the uh, Senate followed. They passed the same bill, $1.1 trillion federal spending bill, ensuring that the government will be funded through September the 30th. The vote there, 79 to 18. Well, the House and the Senate have now uh, passed the spending bill, uh, and uh, conservatives aren't particularly happy about it, particularly given the fact that you have a majority of Republicans in the House and the Senate. You have a Republican in the White House. But it's not as conservative as conservatives anticipated it would be, given much of the uh, campaign rhetoric. First of all, let me ask you to comment on your view of this spending bill, which expires September 30th, uh, but doesn't include some of the things people anticipated it would. Right. I think you're exactly right. It does. It does fall short on a lot of those campaign promises and priorities. Um, obviously, you know, one positive was that there was some increased uh, money for defense spending about $15 billion. But if you remember, that was only half of yes. what uh, President Trump asked for. So um, that's, that's kind of a loss there. Um, and uh, there, there was also some increases to uh, non-defense spending um, on the other side. So uh, that's certainly a negative uh, when we're $20 trillion in debt. And also in, in terms of policy riders, there were a lot of conservative policy Policy riders that didn't make it onto the bill. Um, Planned Parenthood still received funding. Uh, there was no prohibition of funding for sanctuary cities. Um, and then obviously one of President Trump's big promises, the, the funding for the wall, uh, did not happen. There, there was a little bit of extra border security funding, but it was uh, specifically uh, prohibited for being used for, for the wall. So uh, in, in terms of those things, you would, you would say it was a disappointment. It's interesting because many are suggesting that, yes, we, we acknowledge that those things are not in uh, in the bill, or at least uh, the things that are there aren't quite as dramatic as we had hoped for. But it was a simple matter of timing. This only uh, lasts through September the 30th. It's the matter of uh, trying to fill a gap that previous um, Congresses uh, have not uh, been responsible to fill. And this is all going to be handled uh, for the next budget, that um, uh, the 2018 budget. Is that a reasonable excuse? And should we have reason for hope that, yeah, this was just a matter of uh, the, the timing, uh, but the next budget is going to reflect all the priorities that conservatives uh, were promised uh, would be there. Well, you know, I suppose there's always hope that, that something could change in the next five months or so. But this is a, pro- uh, a, a process that we have seen repeat itself over and over again. Um, we haven't passed all 12 of our appropriations bills on mm. time since like 1996, uh, and so we're we're constantly in this pack in this uh, this cycle of passing these omnibus bills, continuing resolutions, which are which are just a horrible way to govern. Um, so so I don't really have a whole lot of hope moving towards 2018. I'm afraid we'll see kind of a repeat of this and, and possibly even worse. Uh, 
uh, but hopefully Congress can can get it together and can stand strong and fight for some of these priorities and look to reduce spending and and all these really important things that they uh, that they failed to do here. Which is much more difficult to do when you're passing just uh, one document that covers everything rather than each of those appropriations bills where you have the opportunity to evaluate whether or not the uh, uh, the, the funding is right, whether or not the, the programs are working correctly. None of that uh, happens when you um, push the or kick the can down the road, as has been the case, as you pointed out, since 1996. Yeah, you're exactly right. And that's that's really the root of the, the problem. When you uh, go through the regular order process and you authorize legislation and you uh, pass the separate appropriations bills on a, on a regular cycle, then you really have a chance to look at all these programs on their on their individual merits and make decisions, some, sometimes tough decisions. Should we keep funding these things? Are they really a core government function? Or should we maybe uh, look, look to reprioritize those funds or, or use it to decrease the that um, all of these things. But when you pass these massive 2,000-page bills, there's really no opportunity to do that. There's no opportunity to amend these bills. And it, it makes it a lot easier for, for bad things to slip into them and, and for, uh, for congressmen to have cover, so to speak, to do those mm-hmm. bad things. Mm-hmm. Now, Republicans had, uh, had suggested some time back that they would return to the traditional way of, of uh, doing appropriations, given the short amount of time between this appropriation that expires September the 30th and uh, the next uh, fiscal year, is it likely that, that that will happen, or is it practically possible that it could happen? I, I think it's highly unlikely, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we're already almost a week into May, and we haven't seen either either House, uh, the House or Senate, introduce a budget yet. So we're already behind the curve on that. It's at the earliest you're looking at, you know, appropriations bills maybe um, starting to be debated in, in early June, uh, but that's even unlikely at this point with so many other big issues with, uh, you know, Obamacare repeal still having to go through the Senate and tax reforms still on the horizon. Um, so really, you know, with, with Congress recessing all of August, there's just not that much time to do it. We basically have uh, June and July and then part of September to get all these things done. And, and I just don't think that's going to happen, unfortunately. So we're going to be right back in this uh, same situation again, September 30th, you know, fighting up against the deadline. Yes, yeah, so discouraging. Now, Republican lawmakers in the House and the Senate have said that they prefer to put off the fight with Democrats over beginning to pay for the wall uh, until the fall, among other things. Um, given the fact that it's probably not going to happen, the uh, uh, the, the budget process as it should, um, is it l- likely that they could make any more ground then than they did now? I mean, there is at least a little more time, but uh, given the fact that we're probably looking at a single document, as is the case now, um, I- I'm guessing we shouldn't be too optimistic uh, that that there's going to be much of a difference next time. Yeah, there there's there's a chance, um, but but not a, not a great chance. You know, obviously it's easier to get things done in the House of Representatives where you just need a, a simple majority mm-hmm. to pass legislation. So you could see something like like wall funding go through there, um, but you run into the same problem in, in the Senate that you have now, where you need uh, 60 votes to make legislation pass, and it's just highly unlikely that you would uh, you know find five or six Democrats to to vote for wall funding. Um, unfortunately, so um, I, I think it's you know there's there's a chance that maybe they could work something out, but but I think it's pretty unlikely at this yeah, point. Um, not likely. Yeah. Well, there's a, a lot of uh, crowing about who the winners and losers are on the on the Democrat side. They see this as a win for them because they prevented the president from getting and uh, Republicans from getting much of what they had suggested they wanted. On the Republican side, they're, they're saying that this is a good down payment for what's likely to come in the future. Somewhere lost in the middle are the American people who are left to live with what they carelessly um, come up with. 
Are there winners and losers in this? Now, you mentioned some of the uh, the things like uh, the, the increased spending for the military that was only half of what the president requested. Are there winners and losers from a political standpoint as well as the American people who are stuck in the middle? Yeah, well, you know, I, I think those are, are very small victories on, on the increase in defense spending mm-hmm. and, uh, and uh, border security and those kind of things. But, you know, ultimately, when those things aren't offset, then the American people are the real losers because we just continue to add on to our national debt. We will continue to increase the deficit. And this is just a compounding problem that's, that's getting worse and worse uh, over the years. We added almost $10 trillion in debt over the last decade, and we're projected to do about the same over the next 10 years. So uh, eventually, something's going to have to give. And, and you know, we're either going to be in a situation where we're going to see massive tax increases to, to fight this problem, or we're going to see massive uh, benefit cuts. So the sooner we can actually start to make some of these things happen, to start these policies of reducing spending and looking to cut waste, then the, uh, the better off we'll be in the long run. So that's really what we need to focus on and, and, and look at mandatory spending reform, which is even more important since that's the bulk of the budget. Uh, but hopefully that process can begin and we can make some progress on those things. So this is, uh, it's it's appropriate to say that this is, as has been the case for some years now, a, another missed opportunity. I think it's absolutely a missed opportunity. And, you know, when you when you have a, a Republican now controlling the White House and both chambers of Congress, you, you sort of have to ask yourself the question, you know, if not now, then, then when? Mm-hmm. So it, it's, it's definitely a missed opportunity. And, you know, hope, hopefully this is just a kind of a bump in the road and they're serious about, uh, you know, getting through this one deadline and, and making something else happen in, in September. Um, but really, everybody out there just needs to hold their, their representatives and, and their senators uh, kind of feet to the fire and, and make sure that they know that this is important to them. And, and try to really push for these things to happen. Yeah, absolutely. Well, we can certainly hope that people will uh, will do that because that's in a form of representative government. That's the role that we play in all of this. Hey, thank you so much for talking with us. I appreciate it. Thank you very much. Bye-bye. Again, Justin Bogey is a senior policy analyst in fiscal affairs at the Heritage Foundation. Uh, the budget, it seems to me, woefully fails the test of fiscal responsibility, doesn't advance important conservative policies, And it's not likely that that will happen next round either, given the fact that that's just months away and we haven't seen anything, as was mentioned earlier, from either chamber. Well, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Up next, we're going to talk with Robert O'Neill. He is the author of The Operator, Firing the Shots That Killed Bin Laden and My Years as a SEAL Team Warrior. Yeah, he's the guy that fired the kill shot. But he writes about uh, not himself as much as he writes about others who are Uh, responsible for all of the elements that go into a a military success like that one, um, putting down the person who was responsible for so much death and destruction here in this country and all around the world. So we'll talk with Robert O'Neill about his book in just a few moments. Also later in the program next hour, we'll talk with Matt Staver with the Liberty Council. We're going to talk about the president's uh, religious liberty executive order, which he chose to uh, sign on uh, the National Day of Prayer. Is it anything more than a, uh, a statement of preference? Does it have any real teeth? And what about the Johnson Amendment? We'll get into all of that when we talk with Matt Staver in the 5 o'clock hour. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back in a few moments to talk with Robert O'Neill, author of The Operator. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, good afternoon and welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. My next guest is a Navy SEAL hero, but he started out like a regular kid. He grew up in Butte, Montana. He lived the life of many American teenagers. He was a standout high school basketball player. He liked to hunt. He was a good runner, didn't know how to swim. But after high school, he attended a local college and joined the Navy on something of a whim. 
Well, he's the author of the book, The Operator, Firing the Shot That Killed Osama Bin Laden and My Years as a SEAL Team Warrior. Wow, we're talking about Robert O'Neill. In his book, he provides an intimate and absorbing journey into the hearts, the minds, and the experiences of America's most elite fighting unit. What a thrill that is. The operator dramatically recounts O'Neill's remarkable 400-mission career, from the extreme SEAL, uh, SEAL training he endured through the perilous missions in which he participated, including the rescue of Captain Richard Phillips from uh, Somali pirates and extracting lone survivor SEAL Marcus Luttrell from behind enemy lines in Afghanistan. The book, The Operator, vividly places us, the readers, alongside O'Neill as he enters uh, maze-like buildings under the cloak of night, encounters predators attacking from false walls, makes swift life-saving decisions, uh, he has uh, had years of training and missions in the world's most dangerous regions um, where uh, something of a prelude to the 2011 uh, secret U.S. attack on Osama bin Laden's Pakistan compound in which O'Neill himself fired the three shots that dispatched the world's most wanted terrorists. Well, there's much, much more we could say, but I want to talk to my guest. Robert O'Neill was born and raised, as I mentioned, in Butte, Montana, lived there for 19 years until he joined the Navy in 1996, deploying as a SEAL more than a dozen times. He participated in more than 400 combat missions across four different theaters of war. During his remarkable career, he was decorated more than 52 times. Among the honors he received were two silver stars, four bronze stars with valor, a joint service commendation, Medal with Valor, three Presidential Unit Citations, and a Navy Marine Corps Commendation Medal with Valor. Robert O'Neill helped confound, or rather co-found, I should say, your Grateful Nation, an organization committed to transitioning special operations veterans into their next successful career. Again, he joins us today to talk about his fascinating book, The Operator. Hey, thank you so much for joining us. It's an honor to have you on the program. Thank you for having me today, Jersey. Great to be talking with you. Now, I mentioned in the introduction that you joined the Navy on a whim. <laughs> Did you imagine yeah. that you would uh, not only just join the Navy, and, and I, I, I still wonder if you could swim at that time, uh, but that you would um, aspire to being a, a SEAL, uh, a Navy SEAL? Uh, no, I, I, uh, I tried to join the Marine Corps uh, initially, and it was all on a whim, meaning I uh, had a, a bad breakup with a girl and decided that the easiest way to get out of Butte, Montana, was to join the military. And I went to join the Marine Corps, and the Marine recruiter wasn't there, and the Navy guy was. I went out to ask him where the Marine was. He, he asked me why, and I said, you know, I want to be a sniper. He said, look no further. We have snipers in the Navy. He said you needed to be a SEAL first to kind of glaze over that. And um, had me sign it. And, and I mean, I, I, I could keep myself alive in the water, but I didn't know any strokes. I didn't know any of that stuff. You know, Montana, cold, not yeah. a lot of swimming <laughs> going on. So he talked me into it, and I was fortunate to have five months uh, before I left for uh, boot camp in a delayed entry program. So I, I had a friend teach me how to swim in five months, which isn't a lot for SEAL training. And uh, no, but no, I never planned on any of that. I was just going to go to SEAL training. Once, once I enlisted, I saw the movies and a couple books, and I'm like, yeah, this is neat. I'll go to San Diego. I'll try the training. Who knows? It's really hard. I might not make it, but I'll have four years in the Navy, and I'll come home and have some stories. At least I did something. And I got in there, and I was fortunate. I worked really hard. Uh, met the guy, graduated, and then, you know, I deployed it to the SEAL a few times. And um, when my time was up, I was like, yeah, I can't leave these guys. They're too great. And so I re-enlisted, and during that enlistment, 9-11 happened, and I, like, well, I can't leave now. The nation needs to fight, and we're going to fight. And I found my way to an elite SEAL team, and then, you know, we're high-profile missions, rescue missions. We got called out to uh, rescue um, 
Richard Phillips from Somali Pirates, and then I was part of a great team to go after Osama bin Laden, and it was all because, uh, you know, a bad relationship, I guess. Yeah, yeah. Now, what in your upbringing in Butte, Montana, prepared you uh, for the work that you would ultimately do in the Navy? Well, I don't think anything quite prepares you for that, but uh, my father and I had a very close relationship, and we would play basketball a lot. And We had a, a deal every time we played, which was every day, that we can't leave the gym until one of us made 20 free throws in a row. And that takes a long, <laughs> long time, but it, it just kind of builds in your mind that, uh, uh, you know, uh, technique matters. If you want to do anything, do it a thousand times. And just, to, you know, it's, it might take a while, but you can't just quit. And that's what this whole book is about, too. It's, 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 it's not a book about the uh, Osama bin Laden, Ray. That's part of it. It's, I call it The Operator because it's a book about the life of the operator. There's a lot of operators out there. But to be a guy from Butte, Montana, who can't swim, who becomes a seal, makes his way up to the ranks and eventually finds himself in Bin Laden's bedroom, it's just a story that no matter who you are, no matter what you look like, you can do anything you want as long as you keep a positive attitude, work very hard, avoid the negativity, and never quit. Absolutely. Absolutely. Now, you um, have been associated with SEAL Team 6. Uh, you started out in your first deployment with SEAL Team 2. What does it mean that these uh, SEAL teams are numbered, and, and what is a team like? How many uh, people are in that team, and, and how do you work together? Well, they, uh, the first thing I must tell you is that this is the first book involving the Bin Laden raid and some of the other raids that has been vetted by the Pentagon. The Pentagon. So I submitted this. They approved it. It's all legitimate. But having said that, there's one team number I'm not allowed to mention, but we can just say that's the elite SEAL team. But the other ones, uh, uh, there's, there's other ones, there's SEAL teams, 1, 3, 5, 7, and 2, 4, 8, and 10 that are all, uh, that are all SEAL teams. I, I was a part of two. Um, there's probably about 200 SEALs there, and uh, they, just have, they normally have different operational uh, areas around the world. They've all been involved in Iraq and Afghanistan. And that's where um, that's, those are the teams you first go to when you get out of that very rigorous SEAL training. And then there's one other team, I'm sure you can figure it out, yeah. <laughs> that uh, you can get to when um, you know, you've got a certain amount of trips overseas, a certain number of years, and a good track record. Um, so, it's, they're, I mean, they're all excellent. They're all great people. And every SEAL has been through the, the first part, the rigorous training that I describe in the book, The Operator. It's been described in many books, and, and I don't think any two accounts are the same because it's such a – a fabulous collage of complete chaos. Yeah, absolutely. What was the training like to become a Navy SEAL? How rigorous um, was that? Yeah, it was. It was. It was worse than I thought it would be because it, it seemed to me like it would be sunshine and push-ups and then like beach runs. But I remember it to the point that you know, it, just being out there on the beach carrying heavy logs or boats on our heads, thinking, "Okay, I, I sort of remember my path. I know I came from somewhere. I definitely don't have a future. I'm going to be in hell." forever as far as i can tell and 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 it's just very very difficult and it's, uh, that's where the positive attitude comes in and um some of the some of the best advice i got for that is this is how i learned how to when you achieve a long-term goal you don't look from now to the end state you you take little victories and i had an instructor tell me when you feel like quitting which you will just don't quit now quit tomorrow hmm. and you just, and that's i mean that's and that's not bad for life too i mean you're not having a bad Life, you're just having a bad day. Keep pushing it off until tomorrow, and you're going to get through it. You recount some of the, the 400 missions that you were on in your career, um, and uh, some of the highlights, at least from our vantage point here, where we've seen nothing of what you have experienced, uh, involve the rescue of Captain Richard Phillips from Somali pirates. We uh, hear a little bit about Somali pirates, but tell us what you can about 
uh, that operation and the challenges that you face working with the team uh, to try to extract someone from that kind of hazardous situation? Well, we weren't even in the area. We were all at home. And I was a part of that elite SEAL team, but it, it was on my birthday, April 10th, uh, 2009, which happened to be Good Friday. And I was with my four-year-old daughter at her Easter tea party at her preschool. Oh, and, it, it, and I got a, a message, um, a page, if you will, that I had to leave. They, Richard Phillips had been taken, and that's our job as SEALs to go get him. So I had to kiss my daughter on the forehead in a classroom and go to war. And in between, the time in between kissing her and being with all my guys in the Indian Ocean was less than 16 hours. And that's, you know, that's good to get all that stuff together, all the guns, all the boats, all the parachutes. And then a day and a half later on Easter Sunday, we rescued Richard Phillips with some shots from our uh, amazing snipers. And that was one of those things where we didn't even know how we were going to get him. We thought we thought of everything. But if you recall, Captain Phillips was in a fully enclosed orange mm-hmm. lifeboat being towed by a Navy cruiser. Nobody in their right mind thought that would ever happen, but it did, and we had to figure out a way uh, to do it. And we certainly didn't go there to kill the guys. We went there just to try to get the hostage yeah, out, yeah. and we put snipers down as security. Just watch them as we prepare to rescue, make sure nothing unsafe happens. Something very unsafe happened, and they uh, they took it upon themselves to take the shots well within their rules. And, uh, that, I mean, that's how that went down. And, and they, they did that just because they were, as the snipers were as prepared as anybody. And it's like an amazing story. And that, that's a story that a lot of us, some of the stories I put in the book, when, when you think of these special operators and SEALs, they're not Superman. They're, I mean, we do have the 1% that are complete freaks of nature. But <laughs> most of them are guys that are pretty much average. They can, they, they, you know, can barely afford their mortgage, but they mow their own lawn, and then they'll be asked to, that day to leave and go rescue yeah. someone. Yeah. Because they have positive, positive attitudes, and they will never quit. They will, they'll do anything to, for success. Well, remarkable uh, uh, servants of the nation, as are you. We need to take a quick break, but we'll continue our conversation in a moment. Again, we're talking with Robert O'Neill. Uh, he is the author of The Operator, and is himself uh, was an operator, firing the shot that killed Osama bin Laden and my years as a SEAL team warrior. We'll take a quick break and we'll be back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show and it's my honor to talk with Robert O'Neill. He's the author of The Operator, Firing the Shot That Killed Bin Laden and my years as a SEAL team warrior. Now, one of the things I appreciate about the book is it's written in a way that helps us to appreciate the challenges that you have faced serving our nation as a SEAL team warrior. And uh, you you sort of give us that heart-pounding experience of uh, being in harm's way and uh, the the objectives that you are charged with carrying out. Um, And I I hope that your readers, as was the case for me, will come to appreciate even more uh, what SEAL team members do for this country. I'm not hearing anything, so I don't know if you're speaking or if we have a bad connection. No, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I didn't hear the end of the question. I apologize. Go ahead. No, I'm just, uh, yeah, that was the point of the whole book was just to, to describe what the people do, including some of the, you know, I always say the guys, but including what some of the women did, mm-hmm. uh, just for the country, even, even way behind the scenes, uh, sometimes on the front lines, but behind the scenes, uh, just to include like the uh, the analysts that found Osama bin Laden, they rarely get mentioned, but they were just working years to find him, and they were behind it there. We've had women with us go on target because they have a a different ability to deal with some of the uh, combatants. So, I mean, the whole story, like I said, is about the operator. It's just, uh, it just tries, tries to bring everybody along with us just so they can have respect for what these uh, 
Uh, the way to describe them is the good guys. I always, uh, whenever anyone asks me a question about did this happen or that happen, I'm like, well, we're all the good guys. The bad guys are out there. We're the good guys, and we go, uh, we go take care of business. Mm. I think um, the the fact that Osama bin Laden was in fact uh, found and uh, and killed by a SEAL team that drew the nation's attention to this remarkable group of of uh, national warriors. Uh, and so I, we can't have a conversation without talking a little bit about that event in and of itself, because people are very interested in how, uh, you know, the long and arduous process of locating him and then sending in actual uh, men who are going to then capture him and the, uh, the the terror of being in an area that doesn't support what you're about to do. Talk a little bit about that particular operation um, and the fact that you were the one that filed the, the fired the three shots that dispatched the world's most wanted terrorist. Well, there, like I mentioned just a minute ago, there there were uh, many people that took years to find him. Yes, they told us about him. We we found out about him last because uh, we were one of the options. It was either going to be send us in or bomb the place. They uh, and they wanted to keep everything on the table, as they say. So they brought us in. They told us what we were doing. And I'll never forget when our, our uh, commanding officer came in and said, all right, the reason you guys are here is because this is as close as we've ever been to Osama bin Laden. And our response was, okay, great. Are we going now? Let's, let's go now. We're ready. Uh, but obviously, we're still in the States. And they wanted us to train on some training sites that they had just to prove to some of the powers that be that we could do it, that this is a solid option. We did it for a number of uh, uh, maybe two weeks. Then we we uh, went overseas, but uh, we 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 fully accepted that we weren't going to live through this mission. That uh, it was one way that we're going to go there and get shot down when we cross the border. That we're going to get blown up by something. The house will blow up, or we'll run out of gas, and we'll just be stuck there. And it's not a good thing. So before we left the United States, um, we sort of said goodbye to our families, but they didn't know we were saying goodbye. I had I had a last meal with my kids, and they didn't even realize it. They didn't even know I was leaving the country. But we all accepted it. Uh, because of what this country had been through with the families, the survivors of uh, 9-11, uh, the victims of 9-11 weren't supposed to fight. This guy was the reason we're at war and we're going to end it. That's why we're here. So we went there with that in mind. And, and um, once we finally got authorized to go, we flew in there about a 90-minute flight across the border. And just watching the way everyone reacted, it was it was incredible. You could get shot down at any second, and there were guys sleeping. There were guys uh, listening to their iPods, just relaxing. Because, you know, they're so cool that, um, well, we might get shot out of the sky, but worrying about it's not going to stop it, so I'm going to catch up on sleep. Um, <laughs> so we had a, a great flight in there, self-reflecting, thinking about what's going to happen. We finally landed there. Nothing went the way we planned. Um, obviously, a helicopter crashed in the front yard. They put us in a different spot because of that. Uh, and based on what happened, um, because we were outside when I went in, there were already a few gunfights going on. Our guys won those. And then I went right to the uh, the main house where they said that lot would be. And as I was going in the front door, I already had guys ahead of me. So it was, it was so cool. And I keep using that word. That's just the way I can describe it. To watch my team work every single issue, every problem, every angle, knowing the house could blow up on top of them and kill them at any time, but that didn't stop them. And they would deal with the issue. They were slow and smooth, smooth as fast, exactly the way they'd done it hundreds of times before. Uh, we finally got to the stairs uh, leading up to the next level. And the, the, the woman who found Bin Laden told us we'd run into Bin Laden's son, Khalid, on the stairs somewhere. She was right. We ran into him. And I watched the first guy on the stairs, the way he handled him. I'm not going to ruin the surprise. It's in the book, The Operator. Yeah. But he handled it so professionally. 
I remember thinking, I really hope we live through this now because people need to know what happened here. That was incredible. I can't believe you thought of that. We kept going up further. The rest of the guys who were in front of me kind of went off to the left and right on the second floor to clear um, the remaining unknown areas of unknown rooms and left two of us. One guy pointing up the final set of stairs and me behind him. Uh, he was looking at a curtain, and he could see behind the curtain there were some people moving. And so he was thinking, okay, that's Bin Laden's defense. They're putting on suicide vests. We got to get up there now. He wasn't saying this to me, but he, he said a few things to indicate it. He, he wanted to go. I wanted more guys, but he was adamant, and uh, I was like, okay, that's it. And I remember before I gave him the signal for he and I to go up the stairs, there wasn't bravery at all. It was more of a, okay, he's, that's where we're going to blow up. Let's get this over with. And so we went up the stairs. He moved the curtain, and he, he sort of tackled the people that were there. They turned out to be women, but he assumed they were wearing body bombs. And so he covered himself on top of the bombs to absorb as much of the blast as he could so the guy behind him could get a shot. He didn't know it was me. He knew it was one of his guys. So he basically jumped on a grenade that didn't go off, but still to do that is a complete, a complete act of uh, heroism. I saw him do that. I turned to the right, and then three feet in front of me was Osama bin Laden. And um, his wife was in front of him. His hands were on her shoulder. I saw him. He was tall. I did a quick target identification. Tall. That's his beard. That's his nose. He's a threat. He's not surrendering. He's probably wearing a bomb. So I had to handle him like you handle someone that's a suicide bomber. I shot him in the head a few times. Mm. And you need to shoot a suicide bomber like that because they can set it off so fast, and it's so violent. It's so permanent. Um, so I needed to shoot him the way I did. It, it ended quicker than I saw him. Uh, and then I, um, I, his wife was right there, so I placed her on the bed. His, his young son, maybe three years old, was in the room. And I, I remember as a father looking at this kid thinking, this poor guy, he has nothing to do with this. Yeah. And I put him on the bed. And then it started to sink in. And um, the guys started coming in the room. And, it, you know, I, I, I was standing there. One of my guys came up and he goes, hey, are you all right? And I said, yeah, uh, what do we do now? And he said, well, now we go find the computer, the computers. We've done this hundreds of times, man. And I said, yeah, you're right, you're right. I'm back. And he goes, yeah, man, you just, you just shot Osama bin Laden. Your life just changed. And we found the, we found the computers, and we uh, put Osama bin Laden in a body bag. We carried him out, separated the two helicopters, and we took off. Wow, that, that's such a remarkable thing. It's, it's difficult to imagine actually having been there and been responsible for putting the world out of its misery by putting an end to the life of Osama bin Laden. What was life like for you after that? as you continue to serve as a Navy SEAL, and then uh, beyond? Well, it was, uh, you know, it's a little bit difficult. That's a lot That's a lot to, to deal with. It's a yes. very, very hard secret to keep, and it, my name kind of leaked out in the community. Um, I did one more combat deployment after that, and then uh, I just decided it was time for me to, to uh, leave. Uh, so I was honorably discharged before 20 years, so I didn't have a, uh, a pension, and I knew that. And it was a difficult process, but I, I realized that uh, people, Navy SEAL special operators have, veterans, have certain skills that employers want to include stress management, team building, uh, loyalty. And uh, so when I started getting work, I, I co-founded Your Grateful Nation, which is my, chari- or my, my charity, if you will. Um, and we help veterans now transition, and we tell them, show them that they have the skills employers want. We'll, we'll find out individually where they want to live, what they want to do. We'll find a company that does that, and we will get them a mentor. They, we have a program that trains them up for about six to nine months. We place them in a um, in, the, in their second career, and and honestly, it used to be let's help the vets get jobs. Now it's let's help the companies get better because we yeah. give them people they don't normally have access to. So it's it's been very very busy, but very very fulfilling. Well, you are still serving the nation. I I so appreciate uh, your service and the book, the operator that helps us 
to better understand and appreciate the tremendous sacrifices that you've made, the the hardship of serving and the uh, uh, just the benefits that we have derived because you have uh, faithfully served. Uh, Robert O'Neill, it's been a real pleasure talking with you, and I appreciate your joining us today. I really, uh, thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. Have thank you so day. much. You too. Again, the book is titled The Operator, Firing the Shot That Killed Osama Bin Laden. And my years as a SEAL Team Warrior, Robert O'Neill is the author, and the book is um, is currently available. We're going to take a quick break, and when we return... Uh, We're going to uh, uh, talk with Matt Staver from the Liberty Council on the president's religious liberty executive order. And we'll talk about the fact that today is the National Day of Prayer. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show, News and Traffic, up next. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Well, good afternoon and welcome back. You're listening to the second hour of the Georgine Rice Show, brought to you in part today by Zero Res. Portions of today's program are engineered by Clark Hilton and James Blend. All of today's program produced by James Blend. Well, earlier today, President Trump, celebrating the National Day of Prayer, signed an executive order to boost America's first freedom. Uh, Trump uh, met with religious leaders for a dinner or will meet with religious leaders for a dinner at the White House Uh, On Wednesday night, he signed the executive order today in the Rose Garden in an event marking the National Day of Prayer. But how meaningful is this executive order? Well, here to talk with us about that is Matt Staver with the Liberty Council on the president's uh, executive order signed earlier today. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. My pleasure to be with you. Now, let's talk about the executive order signed by the president. Uh, First of all, what does it say and um, how does it support religious freedom? Well, you have to put it in context because the ceremony was in the Rose Garden, and there was a lot of ministers that were invited, including Franklin Graham. Now, remember, Franklin Graham was banned by President Barack Obama yes. from having a message at the Pentagon. And this is the first time that the prayer has been actually at the White House in eight years. So the National Day of Prayer returned to the White House, and that was accompanied with a proclamation. And at the same event in the Rose Garden, the executive order was signed. And in this executive order, uh, the president has three general areas. One, a broad description and mission of the administration to protect and promote religious freedom. That will carry the message across the board through all the federal agencies. In fact, many of the federal secretaries of the various departments were there, which I think is significant because they will be implementing this executive order. The second part of the executive order is dealing with the so-called Johnson Amendment, which is the IRS amendment back in 1954 that prohibits churches and religious organizations from endorsing or opposing political candidates. And in that particular part of the executive order, he directed the IRS and the Department of Justice to implement rules and regulations and exercise discretion so as not to penalize any church or religious organization that speaks out on issues of politics. And then the third thing was the Obamacare or the preventative measures of Obamacare. And uh, that is also uh, broader than Obamacare because it applies to conscience provisions. So first of all, it'll apply to require the HHS and the IRS to not apply these Obamacare mandates to religious organizations. So the contraception and the abortion drugs and device mandate, they are directed under this executive order to back off. And he acknowledged today a Little Sisters of the Poor, which is one of the organizations that's in this battle against Obamacare. So all in all, it was a great executive order and a great day for religious freedom. Now, some are suggesting that the executive order doesn't really have any teeth. It's a proclamation that 
that exercises the bully pulpit and the the president's influence, but doesn't really have any impact on policy. What do you say to that criticism? I mean, you mentioned a lot of things, symbolic and otherwise, that I think are very significant. But for critics who say it it has little um, uh, little other uh, weight to it, is that a fair assessment? Well, there's two criticisms that I've heard. Number one, that it's not as strong as the one in February. And number two, that's just a, a statement as opposed to having any key. Let me just address both. Certainly, it's not as broad as the one in February, but the one in February was a leaked order. It wasn't an executive order. And by the way, many of the things that were in there are far beyond the power of the president. So that was an initial draft. The president doesn't have power to direct what happens in the individual states. He only has directive authority on the federal level. So that's what this particular executive order does, is it addresses the federal level. And most executive orders are policy provisions that require implementations, and this is no different. It's basically like the CEO of a corporation getting the department heads together and bringing witnesses, the other staff, and saying, this is the policy of this corporation. I want this policy implemented. Now go out and do it. That's what this executive order is. It's telling the Department of Justice, the IRS, and every other agency of the federal government, implement this directive. Protect and promote religious freedom across the board. Here's two specific areas I want done right away, the IRS-Johnson Amendment and the conscience provisions across the board, as well as the Obamacare mandates that require abortion, drugs, and devices, and contraception. So those need to now be implemented, and that's the real purpose of this executive order. It's a directive, and I think the important thing also was many of the department heads of these different agencies were in attendance, probably more at this executive order signing than any other signing of an executive order, which means he asked them to be there because these are the people that are going to carry out these directives. What does this tell us about the uh, uh, the Trump administration moving forward? Well, I think it's a night and day difference from what we've seen not only in the past with President Obama, but even with President Bush. I mean, not only do we have the National Day of Prayer returned to the White House, which President Obama booted out, but also we have one of the first executive orders on religious freedom uh, in our lifetime. And I think that says a lot. He is uh, carrying out his campaign promises. He said he was going to repeal the Johnson Amendment. He's taking the first steps to basically taking the teeth out of that Johnson Amendment. He said he was going to be a champion of religious freedom, and I think that's exactly what uh, we saw today. The uh, appointment of Judge Gorsuch, um, the confirmation, uh, is another, I think, uh, marker of the president's intent to keep his campaign promise uh, to uh, protect religious liberty, to emphasize a a conservative or, in this case, a, a constructionist view of the Constitution um, another reason to be encouraged by this administration and its uh, its efforts. Oh, yeah. If you look back at the first 100 days, you know, there were some commentators that say, well, there was no major legislation. Well, there was nearly 30 pieces of legislation that were signed by uh, the president that was voted on in Congress. If you look at the so-called Obama legacy, and it has been melting rapidly in front of our eyes with President Trump doing executive orders and overturning them. Now Congress today, actually, at the behest of the president, are working to do a partial repeal of Obamacare and defunding Planned Parenthood. This didn't happen under the Bush administration when he had a House and Congress that were Republican and a president that was Republican. But now just outside the 100 days, 
We have the first vote to repeal Obamacare and move that forward, and the first vote to defund Planned Parenthood, at least for a year at this point in time. So uh, I think we have made incredible progress. So much has gone on in this time, and he's been so much attacked, probably more than any other president in history, by the media. So right now, you know, yes, could it be better? Sure, anytime that you look at anything, we could actually gain more ground. But considering where we have inherited, where we are, a lot of ground has been covered, and I'm excited about the future. We're only less than four mm-hmm. months into this presidency, and we have these significant things happening that are frankly unprecedented. In fact, earlier this week, I was in Washington, D.C., and I'm here now still, uh, for an event that had never occurred before in the history of the country, and that is bringing Christians and Jews together in the White House to celebrate Israel's Independence Day. Never before has anyone ever remembered such an event, and it happened on Tuesday, then the National Day of Prayer on Thursday, and the Executive Order on Religious Freedom, and then the Congress passing, at least the House, passing a repeal of Obamacare to move that process forward and to to defund Planned Parenthood. So a lot has happened just in this one week. You know, I appreciate your reminding us of the context in which these events have taken place. It's easy to forget from whence we came, uh, the previous administration, some of the things that we have lost. And in our impatience, sometimes we expect in the first five minutes for the new administration to do everything um, that we're looking for. But I I appreciate uh, giving us a broader context to remember uh, the progress that has been made as we anticipate uh, moving forward in the days ahead. Yeah, and let's look. Let's look at the uh, spending bill. You know that was a victory for Democrats. Uh, certainly, there's some uh, things in there for President Trump, but not much. But people criticize the Congress, and rightly so. But here's the, what they're facing. The House has to figure out what they can pass to get it into the Senate. Well, the Senate still has this outdated filibuster rule. You need 60 votes to even vote. And then if you do get 60 votes, you can pass something by 51 votes. We don't have 60 votes in the Senate. So the House can pass everything it wants to, but it's going to be backlogged in the Senate. The president and Vice President Trump, uh, Vice President uh, um, Pence, have urged the Senate to repeal the filibuster rule. So far, Senator Mitch McConnell has said he has no plans to do that. We need to put pressure on him to do that, repeal this filibuster rule. It makes no sense to have a requirement of 60 votes to be able to vote in anything. The only way a filibuster makes sense is if the filibuster is a temporary stay. And the reason why you want that is to study the bill, maybe even read the bill, for goodness sakes, but not Mm -hmm. to permanently block a bill. So when the House passes this bill on spending, they're having to think, can we get it through the Senate? And the Senate has this 60-vote possible filibuster. We need to get rid of that, because if we don't, none of the Trump legislative agenda is going to pass through the Senate. So between now and the time when the spending bill runs its course at the end of September, we need to repeal. They need to vote in the Senate to do away with that filibuster rule, and then we can get our legislative agenda done. Well, Matt Staver, I appreciate so much your talking with us today and uh, putting into perspective the events that have taken place over the last several days. Thank you so much. Thank you. My pleasure. Again, Matt Staver is uh, the executive at the Liberty Council. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show on this National Day of Prayer. When we return, we're going to talk about the fact that today is a day in which we are called as a nation to humble ourselves in prayer for the nation. We'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Welcome back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show on this National Day of Prayer, and we want to dedicate the remainder of the program to that very thing, today being the National Day of Prayer. Now, this always takes place on the first Thursday of May, so hence today, May the 4th, is 
uh, National Day of Prayer 2017. It's a time that's designated for all people of all faiths to pray for the United States of America. Today, I suppose we could refer to ourselves as the not-so-United States of America, but this isn't the first time that we have been divided, and this isn't the first time that we've been called to fall to our knees in prayer on behalf of the nation. The theme of this year's um, observance is, For Your Great Namesake, Hear Us, Forgive Us, Heal Us. Now, as you probably know, the National Day of Prayer has a Washington, D.C. observance. It was uh, held from 7.30 p.m. to 9 o'clock p.m. Pacific time. You can perhaps catch some of that as it's uh, live streamed online. But it's sort of the culmination of what's been happening all across the country. This year's chairperson is Ann Graham Lotz. She's the daughter, of course, of evangelist Billy Graham and founder of the Angel Ministries. She delivers the keynote address at the event tonight. The importance of prayer in the formation of the country was recognized as early as 1775. Those who were responsible for making the profound decisions that resulted ultimately in a, um, a constitutional republic um, recognized that it did not depend solely on their um, intellectual acumen, if you will. When the Continental Congress asked uh, colonists rather to pray for wisdom in forming a new country, President Lincoln issued a proclamation in 1863 calling for a day of humiliation, fasting, and prayer. And we're much too sensitive today to call for a, a day of humiliation, although we probably need that more than uh, they did then. But the National Day of Prayer became an officially marked celebration in 1952, and it was signed into law by President Harry S. Truman. In 1988, President Ronald Reagan signed a bill officially naming the first Thursday of May as the National Day of Prayer. In all, there have been 67 presidential proclamations for a National Day of Prayer from 1952 to 2017. Gerald Ford, 1976. George uh, Book, uh, Bush, rather, 1989 to 91, Barack Obama in 2012, are the only U.S. presidents to sign multiple National Day of Prayer proclamations in the same year. Well, last year, all 11, 50, uh, rather, all 50 state governors, plus the governors of several U.S. territories, signed similar proclamations. Today, it's estimated as many as 2 million people will attend more than 30 thousand national day of prayer observances across the country with commemorations in schools, businesses, churches, and homes. And it's rather exciting to consider that there are people all across the fruited plains who have taken time today or will take time before this day ends to humble themselves in prayer. And it is a posture, whether or not you are physically kneeling, it is a posture of dependence. It's an, an acknowledgement That we as a nation, not just as individuals, but we as a nation are dependent upon God if we are going to succeed uh, and thrive, something that we are teetering uh, away from and have for, for quite some time. Well, this year is no exception in that President Donald J. Trump proclaimed May the 4th, 2017 as a national day of prayer by issuing a presidential proclamation and has been the practice here. I wanted to share that with you. President Trump writes, We come together on our National Day of Prayer as one nation under God to show gratitude for our many blessings, to give thanks for his providence, and to ask for his continued wisdom, strength, and protection as we chart a course for the future. We are united in prayer, each according to our own faith and tradition, and we believe that in America, people of all faiths, creeds, and religions must be free to exercise their natural right to worship according to their conscience. Now, it's interesting that the proclamation, of course, was issued today on the National Day of Prayer, but he also signed the uh, executive order 
in favor of religious liberty. And while one may question how much force uh, it has, I appreciated so much my conversation earlier today with Matt Stavert, putting it into a context that gives us a glimpse into the president's heart. He has surrounded himself uh, with men and women of faith. And my prayer is that that influence would uh, deepen and that he would come to recognize that uh, he needs to depend on the wisdom of God moving forward. Well, the proclamation continues. We are also reminded and reaffirmed that all human beings have the right not only to pray and worship according to their consciences, but to practice their faith in their homes, schools, charities, and businesses, in private and in public square, free from government coercion, discrimination, or persecution. Religion is not merely an intellectual exercise, but also a practical one that demands action in the world. Even in the many prisoners around the world who are persecuted for their faith can pray privately in their cells. But our Constitution demands more, the freedom to practice one's faith publicly. Now, I don't know if you recognize how dramatic a statement this is, given the fact that in the previous administration, there was a deliberate uh, shift from religious liberty and religious freedom to the freedom of worship which uh, isn't just a semantic difference. It is a dramatic shift from the freedom to exercise one's religion in the public square to being relegated to uh, opportunities of worship, but not beyond that. So this is really a very profound statement. He goes on. The religious liberty guaranteed by the Constitution is not a favor from the government, but a natural right bestowed by God. Our Constitution and our laws that protect religious freedom merely recognize the right that all people have by virtue of their humanity. As Thomas Jefferson wisely questioned, can the liberties of a nation be thought secure when we have removed their only firm basis, a conviction in the minds of the people that these liberties are the gift of God? In 1789, President George Washington proclaimed a day of public thanksgiving and prayer, calling upon Americans to unite in most humbly offering our prayers and supplications to the great Lord and ruler of nations. In 1988, the Congress, by public law 10307, called on the president to issue each year a proclamation designating the first Thursday in May as the National Day of Prayer. On this National Day of Prayer, the right to pray freely and live according to one's faith is under threat around the world from coercive governments and terrorist organizations. We, therefore, pray especially for the many people around the world who are persecuted for their beliefs and deprived of their fundamental liberty to live according to their conscience. We pray for the triumph of freedom over oppression and for God's love and mercy over evil. Now, therefore, I, Donald J. Trump, President of the United States of America, by virtue of the authority vested in me by the Constitution and the laws of the United States of America, do hereby proclaim May 4th, 2017 as National Day of Prayer. I invite the citizens of our nation to pray in accordance with their own faiths and consciences in thanksgiving for the freedoms and blessings we have received and for God's guidance and continued protection as we meet the challenges before us. In witness whereof, I have hereunto set my hand this fourth day of May in the year of our Lord 2017 and of the independence of the United States of America, the 241st. Donald J. Trump. Now, I don't know if you support the president or not, but uh, that was a well, uh, well-written proclamation that addresses some of the core concerns that many believers, and I imagine people of other faiths as well, but many followers of Christ uh, have held for quite some time. So I appreciate that it acknowledges uh, why many people believe religious liberty has been under threat and why it's imperative for leaders in this country, uh, as they reflect on our founding documents, acknowledge 
that it is um, the role of government to protect uh, what uh, they do not grant, but simply protect what already belongs to its citizens by virtue of their humanity, as this document says, uh, but that is granted to us by God, according to uh, our founding document. So appreciate that very much. I mentioned earlier in the program that the uh, president marked the National Day of Prayer by signing an executive order on religious freedom. It goes into uh, significant detail. And if you didn't have the opportunity to hear my conversation with Matt Staver from the Liberty Council on the president's religious liberty executive order, I would really encourage you to go to the podcast at kpdq.com because he not only talks about the order, there are three, um, three, I believe, if not four elements to it, but he also talks about the broader context of events that have taken place this week um, that support the general principle of the National Day of Prayer and the free exercise of religion, of religious liberty. And uh, I, I think it's well worth, uh, worth hearing. And again, that was at the top of the hour, right at 5 o'clock, talking with Matt Staver from the Liberty Council. And you can pick that up by a podcast if you so choose. Well, I wanted to move from uh, the focus of the National Day of Prayer, uh, the proclamation that was uh, signed by the president, Uh, to ways to pray for people in authority. And that's what Ephesians says and Timothy says we are to do. Scripture instructs us to pray for all in authority. It doesn't designate, there's no asterisk that says that happen to belong to your political party. If you're a Republican, you don't just pray for Republicans. If you're a Democrat, you don't just pray for Democrats. You pray for those who are in authority, those you respect, those you have little respect for, those who lead well, those who uh, are flawed, as are we all. But we are told in Scripture to pray for those, pray for all in authority. Now, that includes not just political leaders, and we focus on the National Day of Prayer because we've been asked by our leaders to focus on this day for our nation's leaders, but that also includes uh, leaders in the Scripture, anyway. It includes leaders who are in positions of authority, whether that's the pastor of your church, the elders in your church, and other um, areas of authority. But today on the National Day of Prayer, our focus is, is narrowed to this, uh, this general area. Uh, the scripture goes on um, to say, but how do we, or uh, the question I should say that follows the scripture, but how do we do that exactly? Well, I wanted to offer some ways to pray for our leaders, our judges, educators, police chiefs, school board members, military officers, elected officials, and others who serve our country by leading By doing this, you're standing in the gap, intervening between God and those in authority. We are intercessors, if you will. You can also join others who are praying for our nation's leaders by checking out the uh, prayer communities, GetAmericaPraying.com, where you can find other like-minded believers who are praying. Stand together with other praying believers, share prayer requests, answers, educate yourself on issues, uh, and more. Now, here's some ways to pray. In fact, we'll get to that in our next segment. Some ways to pray. Uh, for people in authority in the United States of America. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show on this National Day of Prayer. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show on this National Day of Prayer, and we're just encouraging you to take seriously the call from uh, leaders in this country, particularly the president, that says this is in the national proclamation. This is a day that we would we would ask you to spend some time praying for our nation, for those who are in authority, as First Timothy, the second chapter, verses 1 and 2 says. I think I misspoke earlier and mentioned Ephesians, but I'm, I'm thinking of First Timothy. Here are some ways to consider praying 
for our country, that they be God-fearing and recognize that they are accountable to him for each decision and act. These are ways to pray for those who are in authority. Proverbs 9.10 encourages us to do that. James 1.5, that they be granted wisdom, knowledge, and understanding. Sometimes that knowledge, wisdom, and understanding exceeds their own capacity when God intervenes, and we're praying that he will. That they be pre- uh, presented with the gospel and a loving Christian witness. Did you know that there are members of Congress who meet on a regular basis for prayer and Bible study? It includes their staffs and others who are in positions of authority. My prayer is that their influence would continue to grow and that they would be a witness to those with whom they work. That if unsaved, they be drawn to a saving encounter with Christ. If born again, that they are strengthened and encouraged in their faith. First Timothy, the second chapter, the fourth verse, and Ephesians 1, 17 through 23. That they recognize their own inadequacy and pray and seek the will of God. Proverbs 3, verses 5 and 8, and Luke 11, 9 through 13. That they be convicted of sin, transgressions, and iniquity. I mentioned earlier that as we begin this effort to pray for the nation, it begins with our own acknowledgement of our own sin and repentance and humility. But we also pray that others would be convicted of sin, transgression and iniquity. But we can't pray that in good conscience if we haven't done that ourselves. We need to pray that they heed their conscience, confess their sins and repent. Proverbs 28 and 13 and James 4, 8. That they read the Bible and attend prayer meetings and Bible studies. In fact, there are meetings in, uh, in Washington. There are meetings in Salem. Psalm 119.11 and Colossians 3.2. That they value and regard the Ten Commandments and the teachings of Christ. Psalm 19.7 and John 8 verses 31.32. That those who are in positions of authority respect and honor their own parents if living. Ephesians 6.2 and 3. That they respect authority and practice accountability, Romans 13, 1 through 7. That they be given godly counsel and God-fearing advisors, Proverbs 24, 6. That they be honest and faithful to spouses and children, Malachi, second chapter, verses 15 and 16. That they be practicing members of local congregations, not just for the sake of uh, political appearances, but that there's a genuine seeking after God, Hebrews 10, 25. That they desire purity and avoid debauchery, pornography, perversion, and drunkenness, 2 Corinthians 6, 9 through 20, Titus 2, 12. That they be timely, reliable, and dependable, Matthew 21, 28 through 31. That they're honest in financial, tax, and ethical matters, 1 Corinthians 6, 10, 1 Timothy 6, 6 through 10. That they seek pastoral care and counsel when needed, Hebrews chapter 13, verse 7, that they seek out and nurture godly friendships, Psalms 1, 1 through 3, that they have thankful and teachable spirits, Romans 1, 21, and that they be generous and have compassionate hearts for the poor and needy, Psalm 112, 9, Luke 10, verses 33 through 37, that they redeem their time and know their priorities, Ephesians 5, 15 through 17, that they desire honesty, integrity, and loyalty, Psalm 26, Proverbs 11, verse 3, and that they have courage to resist manipulation, pressure, and the fear of men, Proverbs 29, 25, and 2 Timothy, verse 1, chapter 7, that they be shielded from occultism, New Age cults, false religions, and secret societies, Isaiah 1, verses 29, and verse, uh, chapter 2, verse 6, and that those who are in positions of authority be presented with biblical worldviews and principles, Ephesians 3, 10, that they endeavor to restore the sanctity of life, 
families, divine order and morality in their in our nation. Ephesians 5:22 through 6:4 that they would work to reverse the trends of humanism in our nation. First Chronicles 12:32 and Isaiah 59:19 that they desire humility and meekness and be willing to serve and cooperate. John 13:14 and Titus 3:1 through 2 that they be prepared to give an account to Almighty God. Hebrews 9 verses or verse 27. On this national day of prayer, we have the honor of boldly approaching the throne of grace and asking God to intervene in the affairs of men in this nation, that he would move on the hearts of those who are in position of authority, uh, not only so that they might be saved, but that we might live peaceable lives and that we might freely share the gospel with our neighbors and share the gospel around the world on this national day of prayer. Later in the program, I want to share with you what um, Franklin Graham had to say about the country, believing that our nation is in trouble, probably more than most of us have seen in our lifetime. But because we have a national day of prayer and leaders call us, whether they're sincere or not, uh, for many, many years now have called us to come together in corporate prayer for them um, and those who labor with them in positions of authority. And for those of us who take this seriously, we recognize this is a tremendous opportunity to corporately pray, to gather two or more in Christ's name, and to know that he is present with us and hears our prayers. So I am grateful for the opportunity that we have uh, to minister in our community, to have an influence in our community through prayer. So I hope you'll take the opportunity to do that. Uh, Many of our churches have uh, events this evening where they invite congregants to come together to pray. Um, You can go to the National Day of Prayer website to see if there are events in your community. And I know there are several evening opportunities and uh, you can check with your your local church. But it's a it's a wonderful thing that we have the privilege and the freedom uh, today to congregate together and uh, and pray to congregate together for worship and to cry out to God on behalf of the nation. So I hope you'll take full advantage of that opportunity. Again, had the uh, had the uh, a conversation, I should say, with Robert O'Neill earlier in the program, uh, excuse me, Matt Staver earlier in the program, who was with the Liberty Council. And we talked about the president's religious liberty executive order. And while uh, that was a significant um, piece of uh, leadership, whether or not it has much gravitas, I, I questioned. Uh, and I thought his answer was uh, was quite illuminating. But there are other events that are, are occurring around the nation that I think you will find encouraging. And if you didn't have the opportunity to hear my conversation with Matt Staver uh, that took place right at the top of the hour. Uh, you can go to kpdq.com and the podcast and find it there sometime this evening when it's uh, been uploaded and uh, hear his vantage point from Washington, D.C., some of the events that have taken place just in these last few days that I think you'll find encouraging and inspiring. So I hope you'll uh, take advantage of that opportunity. Okay, we're going to take a break. And when we return, I want to share with you what... Uh, Franklin Graham has to say in reflecting on Psalm 11:3, when the foundations are being destroyed, what can the righteous do? And the answer to that question, at least in part, is we can pray, beginning with humbling ourselves and then crying out to a holy God. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show on this National Day of Prayer. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Well, we're back for the final segment of this National Day of Prayer program here on the Georgine Rice Show. Franklin Graham, in reflecting on how to pray for America, reminded us of Psalm 11.3, in which he said, When the foundations are being destroyed, what can the righteous do? 
One of the things, of course, we can do is pray. We tend to refer to prayer as, well, since I can't do anything else, I'll pray, which is just the opposite of how we should uh, respond to and reflect on our the privilege of praying for the nation. This is not our home. We are here as ambassadors of Christ. We are here temporarily. We pray for the peace of the nation to which we have been assigned ministry so that we can live peaceable lives and others around us may as well so that we can proclaim the gospel effectively. Franklin Graham goes on in responding to the question of how to pray for America. And he says that I believe our nation is in trouble today. And I think most of us, if we were to take a moment to reflect, would agree, probably more than I've seen in my lifetime. We are contending with issues that are causing the very foundation of our country to crumble. Our moral and spiritual roots are eroding. The economy is misleading. Family life is disintegrating, and political forces are at unprecedented odds. There seem to be very few leaders who will take a stand for God and for his word. It can be tempting to believe that America has reached a point of no return. And while these factors cause despair... We're reminded in Scripture that with God, nothing is impossible. Nothing. No problem is too great for Him. Seasons of distress and uncertainty and hardship call for faithful, fervent prayer by God's people and reminds us of our responsibility to humble ourselves before Almighty God. We cannot expect healing to come to our nation apart from obedience to God through His Holy Word. And that's not uh, an a directive for an occasion like this one in which we are called by our national leaders to humble ourselves in prayer, but it is our call, our charge from Jesus himself. Franklin Graham goes on, God longs for his people to humble themselves and to seek forgiveness and pray for guidance. God's word says, blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. That's Psalm 33, chapter or verse 12. The Bible commands that we repent of our sins And turn to Almighty God. It begins with us. It's easy to reflect on the sins of our leaders, the failures and shortcomings, the broken promises. But we are to to begin by repenting of our own sins and then turning to Almighty God. And because we are confident that we serve a God of mercy and compassion, we know that he stands ready to respond to our cries out out of the abundance of his divine wisdom. It's a crucial time for us to individually and collectively seek God's divine intervention for the challenges facing us. We need to pray not only for our nation, but we need to pray for our leaders, for all those who govern us, that they will turn to God with humble hearts and follow him. Our military leaders need our prayers as we have dedicated men and women serving on battlefields and sacrificing their blood to protect our nation and many innocent people around the world. God is faithful to bless those who turn to him. Pray that as a nation, we would return to God. As we call on him, let us do so by genuine faith, believing that he hears our prayers. God can heal this great land for which our forefathers fought and died, or at least yours did. We need spiritual renewal. We need a revival in America, and we need each and every one of us to pray. Lord, hear our cry. Again, quoting from, at least in part, from Franklin Graham. Well, in his first epistle to Timothy, Paul wrote, I exhort, therefore, that first of all, supplications, prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks be made for all men, for kings, and for all that are in authority, that we may lead a a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and honesty, for this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior. So if you want to know what God's will is, you can see it right here in 1 Timothy, the second chapter, verses 1 through 3. You may have questions about other areas, but this is something we can be certain of, that we are to pray for those who are in authority. To Titus, the apostle wrote, 
Put them in mind to be subject to principalities and powers, to obey magistrates, to be ready to every good work. Titus, the third chapter, first verse. It is God's will for Christians to be good citizens. We are to obey the laws of the land insofar as they do not conflict with the laws of God. We are to respect those in public office and we are to pray for government officials. This is good and acceptable in the sight of God. We need to pray for the president, his cabinet members, and his advisors. Pray that he would have the moral and political courage to do what is best for the nation, to do what is right. Pray that he would set high moral and ethical standards of conduct for himself and those associated with him, setting an example for other world leaders to follow. Pray that he would surround himself with people of integrity and godly wisdom, and pray that he would have a Daniel to reveal the things of God to him. We need to pray for the Supreme Court. As the small rudder of a large ship determines its direction, the decisions of the men and women of the Supreme Court affect the course of North American society. Pray that the justices would be just and upright in their decisions. Pray that the Holy Spirit would give them wisdom and insight. And pray that men and women of high moral character and sharp legal minds would be added to the bench as the older justices are replaced. We need to pray for Congress that members of Congress establish the laws that govern our nation and would do so well, not out of self-interest or self-gratification. Pray for people of integrity and moral character to be elected to these chambers. Pray that they would have strength to withstand political corruption and pray that they would have vision and wisdom to pass the laws to promote domestic tranquility while keeping the nation safe internationally. We need to pray for the governors of our states, Oregon and Washington. Pray for the governor and and, uh, the state officials who would see what is best for the state or the the, uh, mayor that oversees the city or the county. Not what is just politically expedient to satisfy lobbyists, but what is right. Pray that they would be of high moral character, sensitive to divine leadership and strong enough to resist political corruption. Pray for county commissioners, mayors and city councilmen. These individuals are our neighbors and reside in our communities. Pray that they would seek the good of the city and county and not just their own. Pray that they would be men and women of morality and integrity with strength of character. Pray that they would promote peace and tranquility in their respective communities and pray that they would help establish an environment that helps the church to fulfill its commission. Pray that the city or county laws and ordinances would not hinder the growth of the church as it seeks to reach out to the lost and to build new facilities. And for those who are in civil service that uh, protect and serve our communities, police officers, firefighters, sanitation workers, hospital workers, and other such men and women who help make our community safe and comfortable places to live, pray that God would protect them and keep them safe, and that uh, we may all live in security and peace. Let's pray on this national day of prayer that God's will be done. It begins with us humbling ourselves repenting of our own sins, and then crying out for mercy and help from God Almighty. Well, I hope you enjoy your National Day of Prayer, and have a good night. Thanks for listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com or on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at G. Rice Show and like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ. 
three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.